Hello, and welcome to episode 12 of the History of Yugoslav Football podcast. Pause. After our own little pause for over the Christmas break, we return to a new Yugoslavia. The war is over and there's a new nation to set up. One that is going to be vastly different from that which came before the war in almost every way imaginable. And almost every name that came before is going to change. So firstly, let's move out the old political class and move in the man who will define the next 35 years of history. Going are Ante Pavelic and King Peter II and coming in is Joseph Broz Tito. While many collaborators were caught during the purges or brought to justice soon after, the head of the Ashtazi and architect of genocide would not. Ante Pavelic ran, disguised as a Catholic priest, hiding out in Rome sheltered by the Vatican. When the heat came on the church to give him up, Pavelic ran again to Argentina and would try to re-establish a fascist Croatia from abroad. He would, however, be shot in an assassination attempt in 1957, be forced to flee his hospital for Chile as the Argentine government closed in, before fleeing to Franco, Spain, where he would die in 1959 due to complications from his shooting. It would be wrong to not also mention Dinko Sakic, the commander of Jasenovac and perhaps the next most famed Croat war criminal on the run. He would also go to Argentina and stay there for much of the rest of his life utterly unrepentant. In a 1994 interview conducted after meeting then Croatian President Franjo Tudjman, he stated he would do it all again and only wished more Serbs had perished. In March 1998, he would then give an interview with Argentine TV, in which he claimed no one died at Jasenovac, a statement which outraged Argentinian authorities and led to his arrest for war crimes. He justified his denial at trial by stating that Jasenovac was a Serb myth designed to keep Croats down and as justification of a Serb genocide of Croats into war. He would spend the rest of his life either in jail or in hospital. The priest who conducted his funeral eulogised stating that every honourable Croat should be proud of his name. King Peter II spent his wartime making mistakes. He got married, breaking tradition in doing so during a national emergency, which alienated him from much of his struggling population. He refused to back away from his support of the Chetniks until forced to by Churchill, and he would not return to Yugoslavia, spending his time post-war in America. At no point did his ambitions for the throne dissipate, but eventually reality took over. Yugoslavia was too useful for it to be destabilised by regime change, and Peter's own personality, romantic and melancholic, didn't help given he was at times impractical and too into the good life to accept reality. He would die in Denver due to complications from cirrhosis in 1970. 
In 2013, his remains would finally be brought back to Serbia. As for Tito at this point, he was perhaps the ideal person for the situation. Half Croat and half Slovene, he came from the village of Kumrovec, now on the border between Slovenia and Croatia. By 18, he was already part of socialist organisations and moving around the region for work to Zagreb, Ljubljana, Pilsen, Munich and Vienna. He would be conscripted into the Austria-Hungary army for World War I, where he would be arrested and jailed for sedition before being acquitted. He would take part in the Austrian invasion of Serbia and, by all accounts, excelled as a soldier, something he played down for two key reasons. Firstly, that he was part of a Serbian invasion force wouldn't exactly play well in Serbia. And secondly, him being a great soldier for the empire would contradict his class politics. In March 1915, Tito was captured and spent the rest of the war as a prisoner in Russia. He learned the language and would become the prisoner in charge of other inmates. When revolution came, he was able to escape for Petrograd where he would be arrested for protesting with the Bolsheviks. He would escape again for Siberia, where he was this time picked up by the Bolsheviks and would join their forces for some of the Russian civil war. He finally returned home to Yugoslavia in 1920, married with a pregnant wife and would join the Yugoslav Communist Party just before it was made illegal in 1921. In 1924, he would be arrested and was then acquitted once more, but was a marked man by the authorities. The following year, he was given a choice. Lose communism or lose his job. He chose the latter and became a professional agitator. In 1928, he would be arrested again and sentenced to five years imprisonment, during which his wife and son would depart for the Soviet Union. He would eventually be freed in 1934 and almost immediately resumed his communist activities. He became the organiser for the Croatian branch of the Communist Party and would end up in Moscow, absorbing military tactics, networking and getting himself a new wife. In 1936, he'd be arrested in Moscow as part of the purges, being sent back to Yugoslavia and basing himself in Split to purge the party in Yugoslavia before coming becoming head of the communists in Yugoslavia in 1937, just in time for the war to kick off. As we've covered, he became the public face of the resistance and be seen as the country's liberator and would win easily in late 1945 elections that were boycotted by the monarchists due to the undemocratic nature of the elections, which consisted of a referendum. Votes were cast either for the communist party or no vote. The communists got 91% of that vote. <laughs> Tito was the hero and now he was the man in charge. So with our people in and out of place, it's time to look at football and everything is about to change. Clubs that were considered to have collaborated or to have carried views that did not chime with what was acceptable in the new Yugoslavia were disestablished. SK Yugoslavia were first on the block and much of their infrastructure would be gifted to Svena Zvezda. BSK would swiftly follow with their ground levelled and rebuilt for Partizan. Those behind that club would re-found it under the name Metalach, 
before going back to BSK, before becoming the name that remains today of OFK Beograd. SK Succo, by that point called Basque, was similarly dissolved and then revived a few years later, but would never recover any level of prominence. In Sarajevo, the big losers were Slavia, who were dissolved and their ground given to both Stelesnikar and Torpedo, who became FK Sarajevo, in spite of not playing during the war at all. Sask were also dissolved, which made sense given, given that they were the ethnic Croat side of the city. In short, Slavia were dissolved simply just to maintain equity between the ethnicities. Gdansky and other Zagreb clubs would have their records burned, as not only were they dissolved, but a concerted effort would be made to completely erase them from history. With Dinamo formed to take over from Gdansky as the direct successor, not just of them, but also of Hask. In Slovenia, SK Ljubljana just never came back out of the other side of the war, eventually being refounded as NK Enetnost, who would, come the 1960s, rename themselves as what they remain today, Olympia. Continuation myths need not apply for that one, as we will get to when we get to the 2000s. The same fate befell SSK Maribor, who would refound as FD Maribor and then become SSD Polet, then move into a football-specific club as NK Branik, who would be dissolved in 1960 in shame after a scandalous second-tier promotion playoff against Karlovac saw them lose the first leg, then the second leg would never be played, as Karlovac players were all poisoned prior to the game with Tatum pancakes. And, with the city of Maribor then left without a club, this led directly to the foundation of the NK Maribor we have today. In Macedonia, the most successful club Glagianski merged with Pobeda to become Vardar after having to play in the wartime Bulgarian leagues for three seasons, even finishing second in 1942. Montenegro, as a location where football just plain old stopped during the war, was unaffected, save from the two preeminent pre-war clubs, Cinegorac Shetinje and Balsic, ceasing operations during the war. Hajduk Split are the most notable club not yet mentioned, as they did continue during the war. Sort of. Hajduk refused to play in the Italian leagues during the occupation of Dalmatia, meaning that Mussolini founded a club called SC Spalato to directly take over from Hajduk. And when Germany took over after the Italian surrender, the same offer was given to Hajduk by the Stasi, which was rejected again. Hajduk then moved and refounded on the island of Fis, home of the Partisan Army HQ, and the Reformation took place in front of Tito, playing games against Allied teams as the official club of the resistance. Tito became a fan of the club and went as far as inviting Hajduk to move to Belgrade to become the official army team. For the third time, an invite to play somewhere was rejected and Hajduk remained in split with the direct result being the formation of Partisan. Vojvodina, as a club who were prohibited and who saw most of their team killed during the war, were allowed to remain, 
albeit they had lost a generation of talent that had been called the millionaires, and merged with other local sides to build a team back up under, until 1950, the name of Sloga Novi Sad. So who on earth would replace all of these clubs? Rather than going through club by club in this episode, which we will do next time, we'll go through general naming, as the actual clubs that are about to be introduced are clubs who will be with us for the remainder of our timeline. Any club named Spartak has two potential meanings. The first is that it is the Russification of the name Spartacus, as the struggle of oppression narrative of the famous story had a fairly large dose of prescience for the communists. For Spartak Subotica specifically, the name comes from a Croat Olympic athlete and partisan commander named Jovan Mikic, whose nickname was Spartak and who was murdered by the Hungarians in Subotica. Dynamo clubs are, again, from a russification of the word dynamo, as the name originates from electricians' unions, but then became part, known as part of the state police apparatus. And then, as it was associated with the state in the USSR, dynamo essentially just became a byword for sports association. Locomotive or locomotiva essentially is what it sounds like, the railroad team. Partisan, as a name probably goes without saying as to where it came for, and Savena Zvezda is the symbol of the Serb Anti-Fascist League. Other common names were Proleta, literally proletariat, and Zelyeznika, which, like locomotive, means railway worker. There are also many Mladost, which means youth, and similarly Buduknost, which means future, and Napredak, which means progress. There are also many derivations of the word rad. We see that with rad Beograd, radnik sudlicha, and also radniki nish, and all mean labour or labourer in some format. Some more minor names are jedinstvo, meaning unity, sloboda, meaning freedom, ruda, meaning miners, borac, meaning fighter, and sherik, meaning steel. Some names remain from before. Haiduk originated from a band of radars who harassed the Ottomans, and Velez, the Mostar club, are named after the nearby mountain, which is, itself, named after the Slavic god Velez, who was associated with the underworld and a great many other things. So, the Kingdom of Yugoslavia is gone, once and for all. So too, for now, is the uneasy ethnic balancing act that was never performed correctly. The reality of the Kingdom of Yugoslavia is that it was always a terrible, terrible idea. It was a country made out of necessity between two nationalist movements, Serb and Yugoslav, who both had very different ideas of what sort of nationalism they wanted. One wanted Yugoslavia to be a greater Serbia. The other wanted a federal state with equality between the regions. It was, by its very nature, unstable. And that was something that was exacerbated by the leaders of the nation, 
who never fail to take an opportunity to let their own personal agendas get in the way of running a country. It certainly got in the way of football, with the league itself being unstable in format till the very end and, while it denied Yugoslavia a full side from the 1930 World Cup, it also provided a side that went down in myth. The very same Serb nationalist myth that will eventually cause the downfall of the nation as a whole in the 1980s and caused the downfall of the nation as a whole in the 1930s. The experiment that Yugoslavia would embark upon now would be to run a state without ethnicity getting in the way. To run a state based on one unifying political model and ideology and with one central figure. To be a Yugoslavia whose interest was Yugoslavia as a whole, rather than one whose interests were purely regional. Next time on the podcast, we set our timeline back running as the biggest post-war clubs get founded and as Yugoslavia itself begins again. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.